Today's scripture is in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We just started this sermon series on the Ten Commandments, and we're actually this morning on the Second Commandment. You may have uh, remembered last week I opened... uh, with the first commandment by explaining how as a child when I heard the first commandment that I thought I had it nailed. And uh, really it was in hearing the first commandment and the second commandment, no other gods and no carved images. And I thought, great, I have not whittled out a wooden statue, placed it in my bedroom. I'm not bowing down to it. I'm not praying to it. And so last week we looked at what does it really mean to honor the first commandment? Because obviously it's much deeper than that. What does it mean to honor the first commandment? Well, we arrive in the second commandment, and we find the second commandment, no graven images or no carved images, don't bow down or worship. But then we see and we hear the judgment of God, that God takes this really seriously, and it begs the question, why? Why does God take idolatry, but specifically here, the making of images so seriously? Why is it so important to him that we don't do that? And so we're going to unpack that. And what I want you to see that around the concept of images, there are three issues that circle that explain why God is so concerned about us not doing that. And the three areas are control, jealousy, and service. And you're going to see that all three of these are getting at the heart of what it means to make images and the idolatries that's associated with it. So let's begin with control. Now first, let's define an image. What what is an image? We look at verse four. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above on the earth beneath or the water under the earth. And then verse five, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. And so what we learn is that an image is something that is made from this created world, from this physical world that's made specifically to represent a God or to image a God, to connect to a God. That an image is a making of something in the physical world that is really seeking transcendence. It's a a connection to the unseen God. Now, last week we saw a beautiful picture of that. Not a beautiful picture, a great example of that. In Exodus 32, when the Israelites said to Aaron, make us gods, right? Because Moses had delayed coming down the mountain, and so Aaron made a golden calf. That that was an an image from created things, specifically the, the gold jewelry hanging from their ears, right? They turned it all in. By the way, amazing how costly idolatry is, isn't it? They turned in their gold jewelry, to make a golden calf, right? It was an image, an attempt to connect to a God or to gods. Now, in this series, every time you see a commandment in the negative, there's always a positive attached to it. Or if the commandment's in the positive, there's a negative attached to it. 
And what we see here in the second commandment is that no carved image, that the second commandment affirms that only God makes an image of himself. Only God can make an image of himself. Now, there's parts of Scripture where God doesn't forbid the making of images out of created things. For example, if you look at the Old Testament in the making of the tabernacle when God designed it, right, he ordered the people to make an image of angels and weave it into the curtain of the tabernacle. You look at the Ark of the Covenant that sat in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle, and the lid on the Ark, on the lid, there were two what God prescribed cherubs or angels that were on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, and the space in between was blank, and that's where God's glory dwelled, on top of the mercy seat in between the angels. And God's point was, I fill this space, and I will make an image to fill this space, namely Jesus Christ. No man, no idol, no image is to take this space that is alone for my glory. And so God did. When he sent Jesus Christ, we learn Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2, that the fullness of the deity dwelled in bodily form. Uh, Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact, exact imprint of his nature. So only God can make an image of himself. The reason why God is so concerned about the making of images is because at the heart of it, it is an attempt to control God. It's an attempt to manipulate God it's an attempt to get what you want to get from God. Now, we see this in the history of idolatry throughout the Scriptures in the Old Testament with the idolatry of the nations, which eventually crept into Israel. But let me give you an example. In the ancient world, the bull, the animal, the bull, was a, a symbol of strength, of power, of fertility. And so what they would do is they would uh, construct a, a, an image of a bull that was, they believed would, would be an incarnation of an actual God. So just like Jesus was incarnate, meaning that God put on human flesh so he could be touched and seen, in, in, the, in the idolatry of the nations, they believed that the bull okay, was an incarnation of a God. You could touch it and, and it represented strength and power and fertility. And so they would literally bow down and they would offer sacrifices to the bull Right? It had its own temple in Egypt, okay? so that this God that was associated with it would bless them with, could be uh, rich crops or a, uh, a harvest or victory in battle. But you can see how the control and the manipulation is working into this. Interesting. This sheds some light on what we read last week in Exodus 32. You say, why did Aaron construct a golden calf? Why not a golden turtle? Why not a golden horse? Why was it a calf? Well, a calf is a young bull. God's people had just come out of Egypt. And they saw that, in fact, in Egypt, it was very specific. In Egypt, they worshiped what was called the Apis bull. And it had its temple, and, it had its, and they, they bowed down to it, and they sacrificed to it. God's people were so influenced by that that when they got into Mount Sinai, and Moses is on top, and they, they thought Moses was delaying to come down, God was not meeting their needs, what did they do? They went back to the idolatry of Egypt. They built a, a young bull, a calf. Right? 
to seek that blessing. And it wasn't just in Exodus 32, in, in 1 Kings chapter 12, which is very much the parallel to Exodus 32, you've got Jeroboam who God anoints as king over the northern ten tribes, and you've got Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who's, uh, who's uh, king over the southern tribes of Israel. And, and Jeroboam doesn't want his people to travel south to the temple in Jerusalem to worship, so what does he do? He creates two places of worship, and what's at the center of that worship? It's two golden calves. And then he says the same thing to God's people that Aaron said, right? These, oh Israel, these are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt, right? And so you see this combined worship where God's people have the idolatry of Egypt, right? And they still got Yahweh and, and, and the one true God, but they bring it together in this combined worship and thereby reduce God to a God of the nations, which is a, a God to be manipulated, a God to be controlled. And that's, that's why God gets so concerned about it. Because at the heart of it, that's what's happening. It's really, it's superstition. It's manipulation. That's what's at the heart of image making and ultimately idolatry is this superstition to get control of the gods, to get what you wanted. We've got a modern day example of this. I was reading an article from uh, a Houston, Texas news station this past week. This was several years ago, but I'm sure it still goes on. And in fact, I think there was an article about it here in Jacksonville about people that would take a statue of St. Joseph and bury it in their front yard to help sell their home. The article was fascinating. Listen to this. It quoted a, a real estate agent who was having trouble selling this home. Listen to what she said. Cheryl Ford with Martha Turner Properties is determined to sell the home. So she's asking for some outside help from above, you might say. She says, I have not used St. Joseph in probably about 10 years because the market has been very good. She goes on to say, now we feel like we need to fall back on him even though he's been with us all those years. Do you see what's happening there? That this St. Joseph statue, it's an image of, of Joseph, the husband of Mary, but uh, that, it, that, that image, right, it, it, it's control, it's manipulation. It sits there, and when we need you, and when we need something, we're going to get something out. The article goes on to say that this uh, church supply place in Houston, Sacco's Search Supplies in San Jacinto, has sold thousands of these home sale kits with these statues. Imagery to control, to manipulate. I'll give you a biblical example. Second Kings chapter 18. Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, destroys the bronze serpent that Moses had constructed and made in obedience to God. Remember, the serpent was to be lifted up. When they would look, they'd be healed. The problem is they had started making offerings to the bronze serpent. And so Hezekiah destroys it because it was being held up alongside of what were called the Asherah poles. And the Asherah poles had the image of the Canaanite god Asherah on them. And so what we had was the, the Asherah and the Canaanite gods, and then, oh, and here is the bronze serpent that represents Yahweh. And they had begun giving offerings, which is another way to say they, had, they, they were trying to buy something from God. They were trying to control and manipulate God. And Hezekiah said, we're tearing it down. That's what the second commandment is, is addressing. God, listen, God cannot be controlled. And God will not be controlled. 
In Hebrews chapter 1, when it says that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature, it goes on to say, and he upholds the world with his power. Jesus cannot and will not be controlled. And that's why God takes so seriously the second commandment. Now, we laugh at the story of Houston, Texas, but that's what we do in our hearts. It's the same thing. You can get down to a heart level of how you try to manipulate and control God to treat him like something that can be manipulated to give you what you want. That's, what behind, that's what's behind the imagery and the idolatry associated with it. So why is God so concerned about images? First, the control issue. Second, the jealousy of God. After the first commandment, no other gods. Second commandment, no carved images. Don't bow down to them. God gives the explicit reason why. Explicit reason why in verse 5. For, because, this is why, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, what does it mean that God is jealous? That word in our culture almost always has a negative context. And most of the time, jealous is defined as an emotion that arises out of your insecurity, right? Somebody has something that you want, that you think you need, and so you're jealous, or we use the word envy interchangeably with it. The jealousy of God is something completely different. The jealousy of God is understood when we see in the scriptures over and over this connection that God makes between idolatry and adultery. And it's throughout the scriptures, it probably finds its, its pinnacle in the story of Hosea. Hosea is one of the prophets, and in that small book in the Bible, we learn this, that God commands Hosea the prophet to go marry a prostitute whose name is Gomer. And Hosea does. He marries Gomer. They have several children together. And then Gomer runs off with another man and is unfaithful. And then this is what God says to Hosea in chapter 3, verse 1 of Hosea. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel though they turn to other gods. You see it there? The connection between adultery and idolatry. And then it goes on to say, so I, Hosea, bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. Now, there is not a husband in this room who loves his wife who would sit back idly or not care if his wife ran off with another man. So too, God, because he created you and because he loves you and you have run off to other gods, once again, like we've seen Hosea, Hosea, came to you, came after you through Jesus Christ who bought you not with 15 shekels of silver, but with his own precious blood so that he could say to you, you're mine. 
You're mine. I don't want you to play the whore. I don't want you to run after these other gods because ultimately they destroy you. I know that because I made you. I know how you're wired. I know that you need me. I know that you're going to flourish with me. And so I love you so much that I'm not going to sit back and let you run off with other gods. That is the jealousy of God. That his love is jealous. And it's not motivated by insecurity. Right? Hear this right. God doesn't need you to be happy. He doesn't. He is completely happy in himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for eternity past. But out of that joy, he created you because he wanted to. He freely chose to. And out of his love, he says, I want you to be happy. I want to be in a relationship with you. I want to know you. His steadfast love, his jealous love won't tolerate idols. His his steadfast love won't tolerate something other than Jesus Christ occupying occupying that space on the mercy seat between the two angels on on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. We insert things in there, whether it's actual images or whatever it may be, and God says, no, belongs to Jesus Christ alone. And you belong to Jesus Christ. And my jealous love is not a cranky explosion. My jealous love is a commitment to get rid of the cancer that is eating away at your heart and and the cancer that's eating away at this world. That's what my jealous love is. And to rescue you. And God's jealous love leads to judgment. You see why, right? Judgment is what purges this world of evil. Judgment is what purges your heart of evil. He does it through Jesus Christ, but it's, it's judgment. And that's what we pick up here in verse 5. Right? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that God punishes children for the sins of their father? No. No, what it means is this. That idolatrous parents create an atmosphere that encourages their children to be involved in the same kind of idolatry. That idolatry is generational. And some of the punishment that the parents experience is watching their children grow up and falling into the same sin and the same idolatry as them. And what we learn here is that idolatry is generational and it runs deep. I mean, look at Israel. I mentioned it earlier. They're freed from Egypt. Ten plagues, miraculous intervention of God. They cross through the Red Sea. I mean, how more clear can God be of his revelation and his power to save? And they get to Mount Sinai, and Moses is on the top, and when God doesn't answer their timetable, that's really what was happening at the base of Sinai. Moses delayed. God wasn't quick enough. What did they do? It was almost instinctual. They went back to the idolatry of Egypt. They, they built a young bull, a golden calf, because that's what they had seen in Egypt. And so what we learn here is that idolatry, is, it's, it's generational. That's what we're learning here in verse 5, that third, fourth generations. And that's another reason why God's so concerned about image-making and idolatry is that it doesn't just affect one person, it affects generations. The positive side is when you share the gospel with somebody, and they come to Christ, you share the gospel with more than one person. You share the gospel with, a, with a, potentially a generation. 
God has, God has broken into the cycle of, of idolatry and unbelief in my family. And he has started afresh and anew with me and my sister and my brother. And, and we don't know why, because when you look at my extended family, that is, is generally unbelief and idolatry, we're the only ones that he has broken the cycle, and I don't know why. It's grace. But the beauty of it is he is starting a new family tree, a new family tree of belief, and hopefully, Lord willing, generations of faithfulness. That's what God's jealous love loves to do. And for those of you in this room, there's a number of you maybe who are what we would call first-generation believers, that God has broken in and broken the cycle of idolatry and unbelief in your family. And some of you are, are eighth, ninth, tenth, you can't even count generation of believers because as far back as you know, you came from a family of faith. Isn't that amazing how God works? But you see how idolatry is generational. So why is God so concerned about images? First, the control of God. At the heart of images and idolatry is control and manipulation of God. And he cannot be controlled. And he cannot be manipulated. Second is the jealousy of God. At the, at the heart of idolatry and image making is this concept of adultery and unfaithfulness. And then finally, the final issue that's swirling in this discussion around why God's so concerned about images and the worship that comes of them is service. Now, to illustrate and capture this, we're going to go to a story in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, verses 17 to 21. The Pharisees approach Jesus. This is what they say. Tell us then, Jesus, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, what is Jesus teaching through this? What's he teaching? Just as the people had to give back to Caesar the coin that bore his image, so God's people are to give back to God that which bears his image. Now, let's look at just briefly a history of image in the Bible and the scriptures. Genesis 1 and 2. God creates man in his own image. Genesis 3, that image gets shattered. There's still a remnant, but it gets shattered. So God comes in to rescue his image by sending Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of God, the exact image of God, of the invisible God, who refuses to commit a, a adultery or idolatry. We see this in Matthew 4, even as he's offered the entire world by Satan in the desert, right? He refuses. Serves God perfectly, and then through his death and resurrection, wins for thousands of generations the steadfast love and blessings of God. That extends to you and me. But it gets even better. In Romans 8, 29, it says that God is conforming you to that image. So back to the question. 
Right? If Caesar gets a coin, what does God get? He gets our very lives that bear his image. That we give back to God his image by giving ourselves because we bear the image of God. That that's what it means to give back to God what is his. And the reason I point that out is because idolatry is intensely selfish and it results in intense self-worship and self-centeredness. And here's why. Because when you uh, create an image to worship, or when you try to remake God in your image, in the image of man, which is a lot of what we probably try to do, when you do that, you're making an image or you're remaking God in your image. Why? So that it can give back to you, that that's what you do. When you make an image, that image is going to give back to you. The reason God is so concerned about image making is because idolatry that's associated with it steals his image. It steals you. That is his image that should be coming back to him, that should be serving him. 1 Corinthians 6, you're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We give back God's image by giving him ourselves. We are not made in our own image. We don't remake God in our image. We are in the image of God, and we give back what belongs to him. That our lives are to be given back to him because we are in his image. And that's why God's so concerned about image making and the idolatry that's associated with it. Let's pray. Father, we confess this morning our attempts to control you and manipulate you and probably a lot of it is even, we're not even aware of it, of how our heart is functioning. And we also confess this morning that the idolatry that runs deep in our hearts and that is generational. Many of us here this morning, parents, we, we, we grieve when we see our kids following the same sinful patterns. And maybe even when we ourselves are acting sinfully in our marriage or in our workplace in the ways that our father did. And while we see that, that visiting the iniquity of the third and fourth generation this morning, we lift our eyes up from that and we see, Jesus, that you, by being the perfect image of the invisible God, refusing to commit idolatry on our behalf, that you have won for thousands of generations. Many of us sitting here this morning, the steadfast love and the blessing of God. So, Father, would you in our attempts to control, and even our, our times and our seasons that we run after other gods, would you help us to see by your spirit what is really at play? And this desire to control, this desire to get stuff for ourselves, to, to get back what we want, and ultimately to be unfaithful and to run off from the God who knows us, made us, designed us, loves us, and has nothing but blessing and goodness. Father, as we close in worship this morning, would you recapture our hearts, that we would leave here knowing that we are made in your image and even remade through Jesus in your image and give back to you what belongs to you, and that is our very lives. 
And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.